presents RPG Business Talk. I'm Josh Fox and uh, we are going to be talking about our experience of running a role-playing business, making money in role-playing, hopefully, um, making stuff, selling stuff, all that good stuff. Um, so I'm here with... So my name's Kat Tobin and I'm the Managing Director of Pelgrane Press. Hello, I'm Jay Isles. I am the director of UFO Press. Uh, and I'm Mary Hamilton. I'm the CEO of Rowan, Rook and Deckard. I didn't introduce who I was. I'm Josh Fox. I'm one half of Black Armada Games. Which half? Uh, I, I declined to answer that question. Um, <laughs> the half below the water. <laughs> I'm the half Front who's on this left, panel. right. <laughs> I'm I'm currently uh, northeast. So I thought we would start. Let's start. You've got an idea for a game. Maybe you've already written it, or maybe you haven't. What? And uh, I'm not talking about you. Obviously, you know how to um, get your stuff out. But if and if you're a, a listener right now, what are your options to get some money for your game? Cat, let's start with you because you are. A big publisher people can come to you right um yeah so we tend to um, we tend to work a lot with our own in-house writers um so we do have some opportunities for people to do freelance writing on some of our individual product lines um so like for example writing adventures or supplements or things like that um it would be quite rare for us to work with um a, a brand new writer or somebody we hadn't worked with before on a core book um just because Obviously, when we've worked with somebody before, we know, you know, we, we understand how the relationship is going to work. Um, so, but that is certainly kind of working in partnership with an existing publisher is one is one way of doing that. Um, do, do we collectively think that this is a good route to take um, to approaching publishers? Have we, has anyone had any luck with that kind of thing or heard of others? So I think it's probably a great route to take if the publisher has products that you're passionate about. If there's an existing IP, like um, a Trail of Cthulhu or a Knight's Black Agents or whatever, that you think, I really want to write the sort of content that the publisher puts out for this, which is most going to be adventures for those, mm -hmm. if I'm right? Yeah, adventures yeah. are kind of supplements and expansion books. Yeah, so... That's a good uh, path, I think, to getting writing. And thank certainly, if you look at the RPG industry historically, the great majority of writers, I'd say, got their start by doing supplemental material like that. I mean, you can just look at the uh, DMs Guild on Drive Through RPG and see how many people are out there making uh, yeah. fifth edition compatible products. It's not how I got started, of course. Um, so. I got started as a indie designer through just making my own things and putting them up online. And, well, this was quite far back in the day in the heady mists of 2014, uh, <laughs> where um, you could put a draft RPG up on drive through for pay what you want, get money from that, spend that money on uh, stock art to make it look more professional. Uh, use that more professional thing to take go to Kickstarter to raise money for a actual book, 
use that book to uh, raise your promotion a bit so that you can make supplements use those to raise money for a bigger Kickstarter and so on and so on and escalating gradually and that was quite a slow grow for me at least it was very much trying to make sure that I didn't put in more money than I was making out at any stage um, and just build on what I've got and kept keep my scope limited. I was going to say, I think there's a big difference between trying to get a start as a writer in the industry where um, you might go to existing publishers, you might go to the DMs Guild. Um, there's quite a lot of routes in to try to find um, opportunities to write the things that you care about using existing systems versus wanting to build a career as a game designer in the industry. Um, I think people tend to see those as sort of counterparts of the same thing, but the kinds of the kinds of initial approaches that you might make to publishers and the kinds of decisions you might make about how you're setting yourself up, I think are quite different in each of those scenarios. Um, I'm not a game designer, I, uh, or at least not a tabletop game designer. Um, so what my, my role has actually been in Rowan, Rick and Deckard is turning systems that Grant and Chris have written into something that people can actually hold in their hands. And that's a very, very different... Um, we, are, we are effectively a self-publishing business that has gotten really out of hand um, and has gotten to the stage where we are now um, publishing other writers and commissioning other writers to write for the product lines and the IP that we've created, which is a whole... Um, it's, a, it's, it's a level of... Uh, I guess escalation that happens when you've got something that's worked really well and that is successful but that can't happen if what you're doing is primarily writing for lines that already already exist mm. um, so I think there is a there's something really quite important to consider about the kinds of work that you want to do um, and the kind of career you want to have and how much you're willing to invest in the infrastructure that sits around the creative work versus how much you just want to be paid to write good to write good things. Being paid to write good things means finding someone to pay you to do that, whereas being willing to create something from whole cloth yourself probably also means being willing to put in the extra work around uh, actually turning that into a, a fully functioning business. Hmm. Definitely. I think that's a really good point um but i mean with that said i have heard quite a few people complaining online that role playing you, you don't make very much money um you, you can't make a lot of money in role playing uh I'd, I'd be really interested to know what the opinions of uh the people on this panel are about about that Firstly, you need a definition of what a lot of money is. <laughs> right. Um, I think from what my experience is, a lot of the people who have historically spent a lot of time writing in RPGs are people who have a main job. And that main job might be in academia or it might be in IT. It's probably in one of those two. Um, and so the question of how much money you can make is somewhat skewed because those are quite good jobs in the modern day in many ways. Um, certainly it did take me three or four years to get to the point where I could start drawing a salary from my RPG business but it's not a bad salary and importantly that wouldn't have happened if I wasn't investing that work in 
that business. If I had been writing freelance for that, I mean, there's a sort of trade-off, right? Like, if you write for yourself, then there's the chance that all of it is for nothing, or that the product doesn't work, and you don't know how much you're going to be able to make out of that. But once you've made something, it's yours forever, and you can start working off that long tail, maybe. Um, you work for someone else as spec work, you get what you contracted for, hopefully. And, you know, there are some companies that are very good at paying your uh, invoices and pay well per word, and companies that aren't. And if you're just starting out, you might not be plugged into the whole whisper network of what company is good to work for and what isn't. But it does mean you can put in the work and get the money, and that's a sort of low-risk transaction. So it's certainly a choice to make as you're starting into RPGs, I think. Yeah. I think I'd add to that. It's it's really difficult to make enough money to live on off one product. Mm. Um, and I think one of the common misconceptions that creators have is that one product makes a sustainable business or even two products or three products. Actually, it's the it is the collection of those things over time and the creation of new things and the generation of community around those things and the complexity of building product lines over time that creates a sustainable business. Um, and that is the creation of a sustainable business is what makes it possible to earn a consistent wage. Um, that's not the same thing as freelance writing for RPGs. Freelance writing for RPGs on the whole is poorly paid and it is, as Jay said, not particularly secure um, much as freelance writing for magazines is tends to be poorly paid and not particularly secure. Um, it's interesting because I think RPG writing in particular has a bad rap because of the low kind of pence per word um, that a lot of uh, more mainstream publishers pay. But the flip side of that is that I know um, plenty of people kind of labouring in the content mines trying to pull out... Um, five or six 200 word stories a day for less per word than the average RPG contract pays. Um, I think there is a, a broader kind of situation, a broader issue around writing being devalued and RPGs are sort of part of that. Um, we try very hard actually to mitigate against that. So Rowan Rick and Deckard is a, we're an accredited living wage employer, which if you're in the UK is a thing that you can be. Um, we are, if in order to keep our accreditation, we are required to pay um, for people's time at a at a wage that allows them to live. Um, we write into all of our contracts that for our contractors, they are obliged to make sure that we are paying them enough. And if they they feel that we're not paying them enough to live on, um, then they are they have a contractual right to tell us about that and renegotiate their contracts. Um, not every publisher works that way, but we do because in our experience, you to some extent you get what you pay for. But also, if you don't pay, if we don't pay well, we can't argue that we should be paid well. And there's a sort of give and take that comes along that comes along with that. That's a super that interesting, though, Matt. Like, mm. Can I ask? That said, like, I just I just want to say that like living wage in the UK is still less than like well under twenty thousand pounds a year. If you're coming from a job in technology and you're currently on, I don't know, £80,000 a year, that isn't going to look like it quite-unquote enough money. 
So that thing about expectation setting is super important. Can, can I ask about the living wage thing? I, I don't want to um, go too much off on a tangent, but um, do, is that clearly if you hire someone to write like 10,000 words for you and then they never come back, you're not going to give them enough money to live on from that one piece of work, right? So is it an hourly thing or? So we pay by the word. Um, actually, no, we don't. We pay for a for a chunk of work. So, for example, for Strata, um, we paid people for initially for a, a short um, treatment of what they wanted to write. Then we paid on delivery of the first draft and on uh, finalisation of the final copy. Um, so there were sort of three stage gates at which people got paid. So we weren't asking people to do a load of spec work up front for which they weren't seeing um, for the, which they weren't seeing anything. We didn't pay specifically per word. What we said was we are aiming for something in this approximate area. It is up to you how much you eventually deliver. This is how much we are offering. It is important that you that if you feel that this is to either going running longer per word uh, on a word basis than you're comfortable with or taking you more time than you're comfortable with that you come back to us and have another conversation about that. But we paid effectively uh, an amount for each adventure that was written rather than paying per word because we didn't want people to feel like they needed to write long um, or to write longer than the, the adventure deserved in order to get paid. We wanted people to give us their best work, not their most verbose. Yeah, and that's like a, a, a kind of a, an issue across the industry, right? With the model, it is typically per word and that does mm -hmm. seem to create a perverse incentive um, to, to go towards length, but also it doesn't take into account, as you were kind of saying, how long does it take? It could take you to write a thousand words, could take a long time or a short time, depending mm -hmm. on what you're writing. I mean, it takes me far longer to write short than it does to write long. Um, editing is the hard part. Um, having you know, having having worked as a professional writer in other industries, it's much easier to write twelve hundred words than it is to write six hundred. Um, and or, and the six hundred word piece will be much much better than the twelve hundred word one. Um, we wanted to give people the capacity to self edit without feeling like they were going to be penalised. Yeah, I think that's that's really wise. Um, I'm just going to say something that I want to say, and then I'm going to ask you a question, Cap. Um, so. I my observation I've been actually tracking my hours um, for the last I guess getting on for a year now so it's not really enough data yet but I am finding that role-playing writing and this may be to do with my productivity or the way that I work I don't know gives a really good hourly rate mm -hmm. now I can't live off that hourly rate because I don't have enough hours to make it add up to something big but I'm getting paid as well for my role-playing writing uh, and this includes freelance work by the way as i do for my day job and i'm in middle management wow yeah that's interesting that is that is very interesting i was really surprised i i thought i mean i i wasn't that surprised from my like kickstarted stuff because you can you can make a lot of money out of that if you if things go well for you what was really surprising to me is that like a 10 cents a word or uh, thereabouts, you get a really good hourly rate at, th at the rate I work. Who knows whether mm. that is representative. But so Kat, I would be really interested to hear from you. We've kind of been talking about how, whether you can make money as a writer, but you are running 
like a business and that, I mean not to say that other people here aren't but you've got a kind of a different scale of what you're doing and I'd be really interested to, to know um, how does that work out in, in the sunlit uplands which we all eventually aspire to reach where we become uh, a quote-unquote big publisher um so so the company uh, our company can basically hire me um at and i i come out of uh, financial services and accounting so when i originally started i took like a 50 percent pay cut or something it was probably even more than that um and you know my certainly my salary i would say was not in any way competitive for the work that I was doing for a very long time. Um, and it was actually only when we moved to hire a second person, um, who's our administrative assistant, when we originally decided that we'd take on somebody else, we we looked at my, we, we were similar to kind of Maz, we were adamant that we were going to pay them like the, the, living, the living wage in the US. And when, then when we looked at what I was getting paid, if we looked at it per hour, given the amount of hours I was doing at the time, I would have been getting paid less. So we, we gave me a bit of a, a salary increase at that point. Uh, so it's, it's now, I would think, uh, like, again, a, a fairly average salary. Um, certainly, if, if I looked at it, I, I don't look at it compared to what a managing director in probably any other industry would be earning. Because um, it's no, it's, you know, just nowhere near those kind of scales. Um, so I, th I think that, yeah, definitely there is a, the perception of the value of an RPG, I think across the industry, um, makes it very difficult for RPG publishers to pay people what we would like to be able to pub or to be able to pay them. And mm -hmm. Kickstarter has really kind of disrupted that. Um, Kickstarter has really made it possible to pay people much better. Um, but I think you know, we might end up talking more about distribution later on, but the traditional distribution retail model, you know, the amount that you're kind of giving over um, as a result of that, you know, just the amounts that you're getting per um, per product, um, you know, again, like totally agreeing with what Maz was saying, like you just, you need to have multiple product lines to be able to hire somebody, um, to be able to hire somebody to do the most important, I would argue the most important work that needs to be done, which is taking the words and the editing and the art and the layout and putting them all together, assembling them into a book, getting them printed and shipped around the place. So I think the actual production is often something in the RPG industry that isn't, you know, we talk a lot about how rates for writers, rates for um, artists, but we very rarely talk about the rates that the producers are getting. And certainly I think that for a lot of, um, like I said, it's, it's kind of different for us because I'm our only employee. Hmm. Um, but I know that for a lot of kind of indie game companies, a lot of the people doing the bulk of the production work, and it sounds like, Jay, this was kind of your experience too, just aren't getting paid anywhere near what their market value would be for the work that they're doing. Um, so, yeah, so, uh, I mean... I, you know, there, there are some really fascinating conversations around the kind of economics of, um, of the industry going on at the moment. Um, and a lot of people kind of justifiably wanting better word rates. And like Maz, I would love to see a different way of pricing work because I, I think that the word rate does really artificially 
you know, it, it means that you're paying people for bloat. And yeah. you know, why would you do that? Um, so certainly it's, it's something that I'm kind of looking at as well in terms of how can we better reward people, reward people for the quality of the work rather than the quantity of it. Yeah. It's a really interesting point about production, uh, production wages and production rates. I think a lot of people who, a lot of creators who go into Kickstarter um, with a specific single thing in mind that they want to create quickly discover that the production is uh, a much more skilled and much more difficult um, task than perhaps it looks from the outside. Um, writing the game is hugely important and vital and necessary and it's is, is very much the lightning that requires bottling but you still need someone who can bottle lightning. Yeah. Um, and that in and of itself is not an easy task. And I mean, our experience, one of the reasons why I work closely with Grant and Chris is because although my skill set isn't in writing and creating the RPGs necessarily, um, the, the bottling bit is what I'm good at. And the three of us as a result work, I think work really well together as a triad. The two of them create um, and commission art and build these absolutely beautiful things um, in conjunction with our designers um, and my job is to turn that from something that exists in a Google Doc or as a PDF into something that people can hold in their hands. And that's a, an entirely separate set of skills. Mm. Um, it's vanishingly rare to find someone who can do both. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I would absolutely agree with that. And I think Sorry, that as a, apart, apart from Jay. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, I think that as a result, that's why um, production has been so undervalued in the industry, because the mm. people who are people who are doing the the kind of writing you know for them i think creative people they're really focused on the creative work that they're doing and that's where they're attributing the value to so that's what they're thinking about when they're thinking about like the rates that they're being paid but they're not necessarily pricing or looking at the work that needs to be done around that so you know your kind of your administrative work basically your kind of project management work your um, all of that kind of work which which is you know as massa said it is it is very skilled work it's not something that everyone can do it's not something everyone wants to do um but yet there's there are very few conversations um happening in the industry about paying people to do that kind of production work it's just assumed that it'll be part of your role if you're like particularly if you're a single um creator and the absence of that role i think um, for a lot of people, that, that explains a lot of failed Kickstarters and, you know, people kind of going into it, they've got their idea, they've got a list of artists that they want to hire, they do the Kickstarter, they get the money, and that's where the problems start. And we've seen people who make really quite a lot of money on Kickstarter and then drop Don't off the face anything. of the earth because they've got no idea how to how to manage the project. Yeah, exactly. And I think, I think that as a result... Um, you know, it, it quite often frustrates me how how few of podcasts like these there are, how few kind of conversations with biz people in business and RPGs talking about the business aspect there are. Um, because I think that the industry as a whole isn't kind of valuing and supporting that kind of work enough. Mm -hmm. So on that yeah. subject... So, I mean, there's an interesting... Sorry, Matt, so, Sorry, I just want to... Can I say one more thing? Just... Yeah. I think it's really interesting that if you think about it in terms of the work that people are willing to quit their day jobs to do, 
Um, a lot of people are very willing to quit their day jobs to write and to create. That is an enormously exciting thing to do. There are very few people who are willing to quit their day jobs in order to uh, have arguments with printers and wrangle distribution. And, um, that's that's not the kind of thing that gets you out of bed in the morning on a very low wage. Um, and so, like for me, for example, I have a day job. Um, I am lucky in that I have a I have a very positive day job. Um, Grant and Chris don't. Hmm. They what they want to do is as far as possible to write about elves full time. I don't want to do production work full time. Um, so I see this as you know I I'm I really enjoy different elements of the job. I really enjoy the business strategy side. I really enjoy being part of that process of seeing brilliant art get into people's hands. Um, but at the same time, it's not the creative career for me that it is for them. Hmm. So I think I've got as far as I have, partially from making good use of the different sort of quirks of my brain, like, uh, you know, the part of me that very much enjoys putting together spreadsheets has been very useful in going my own way. And the part of me that uh, doesn't particularly enjoy committing to a single task at once means that I can sort of dip from uh, project management to doing layout work for something, to doing writing, to doing social media marketing, to, you know, looping back down to production or whatever, or podcast editing. Like, I, I have a lot of things to spend my time on, and so it's pretty good that I'm doing this full time, because otherwise I would just be winding myself up into a ball of stress. Um, <laughs> so... You do sort of, if you want to go it alone as an indie creator, and I shouldn't say that I'm doing it this alone for what it's worth. Like I've put out the products I have because I've had great artists backing me up. I've had great other writers and co-designers backing me up. But if you're actually wanting to make your own studio, so to speak, you do need to be able to put a lot of those different works in or have enough Kickstarter funding behind you that you can hire people to do all that thing. Um, so there's been a lot of Kickstarter tragedies quite recently that could very much have been negated if they put hiring a business manager on the same tier as hiring artists and writers. And it's just, you need to be able to go into these things knowing how much it's going to cost to get what you want, when it's going to cost those things, what's your plan for if it costs more than that, and also fundamentally, how much you are willing for it to cost. Because scope management is such a huge thing when you're trying to be indie and self-controlled. You really have to work out what is doable for the budget I have. And that's a time budget as well as a financial budget. So is it possible to hire a business manager? I mean, I'm, I'm kind of I'm like you, Jay. I, I do business stuff myself um, I quite like spreadsheets I, it, and I, I think I might go mad if I tried to do game design every day uh, without some variety so that's good for me but not everyone is in that position can you can you hire like a freelance business manager is that a thing I, I think cool. the fact that you have to ask that and and that you know you've been met with kind of largely silence um, tells you that it's it's certainly in our industry it's it's not a thing you know 
but, but then there are some in saying that, you know, there are always examples to the contrary. And I think somebody like Sean Nittner um, is kind of somebody I aspire to um, in terms of their kind of ability to like project manage multiple like things and do them really well. So there are some people who's who specifically whose jobs are that they are kind of a project manager or a business manager. Um, I think Evil Hat does that quite well. But I don't know of many people exclusively doing that. But Evil Hat have picked up people, haven't they? I was just saying, so we um, it's something that we are looking at. We are hopefully tentatively going to be consulting on a project uh, not acting as a publisher for that, but acting effectively as the production and uh, logistics support to get it off the ground. Um, I mean, I, can, I will report back on that in a in a, about six months' time to let you know if it's worked. And did you did you solicit that, or did someone come to you? Someone came to us. Um, and their project was in a place where we felt that that was the best way that we could potentially offer them help and support. Um, and it still feels like that's the right that's the right decision. It's a piece of art that we're really excited to see come into the world um, and that we wanted to help facilitate. And it's an experiment for us and an experiment for them. So we'll see how it goes. It'll be really interesting to see how that goes, I think, specifically for you, actually, because I kind of everything that I'm hearing in this conversation suggests it would be really helpful to, for people to aggregate this stuff and say, okay, actually, there's not that many people with the business management skills, so you need to have somebody who can be the shared business manager for a lot of different people. Um, and it'd be nice to think that that could actually work and be financial, financially viable for whoever that person is. Um, doesn't sound like yeah, it has been so far. Well, I, I don't hear... I don't, so I, I don't know if this is a thing, but I don't hear people talking about, you know, the, the share of revenue or the share of profit that they're giving to their producers in the way that I hear it being given to artists. Um, to some extent, that's because there's no IP, there's no copyright in a, a good production system and a, or a good spreadsheet. Um, but there is an interesting question there about whether that should be part of the conversation for your if you're looking at hiring a business manager, are you paying someone a set fee to get things set up for you? Or are you seeing them as uh, as as crucial to the success of the project as the artist or the writer and thinking about royalties in a different way? Um, it feels like if it's going to be financially viable to, as Kat was saying, to try to pay people um, something at least approximating their market value in other industries, that might be a way to do it. Yeah, so I would quite like to talk about royalties, if that's all right, if that's not too much of a change of subject. Go for it. Yeah, because that's one of the big things about um, work. You know, hiring people to work on something is how much do you give them a one-off payment versus a share in the success of the thing? And you can say that maybe it's more equitable if you give them a share in the thing. And on the other hand, you can say that actually for people who are in more financially precarious situations, giving them a one-off payment is actually the more equitable thing to do because you're, cause you shouldn't ask someone to wait on the success of your thing when they've already done the work. I mean, for me, where I've landed on this is that I try to give people 
um, especially people who have who the project wouldn't have happened without their input. Uh, I try to give them both a one-off payment, uh, an upfront payment, and a royalty. But yeah. Yeah. I so don't know if there are like going royalty rates in the industry. I've never got involved in that. Cat, were you about to come in? Yeah, I was. I was. What I was actually about to say, like, I think that's a really interesting point, Jane. Um, and I definitely agree that there are advantages and disadvantages to to both. Um, but when Pelgrane started off, a lot of our freelancers um, were paid on a royalties basis. So I think they were given, you know, kind of. Um, an advance on royalties initially and then they would get royalties over the course of the project and we very recently tried to buy everyone out of those royalties um, because what we've discovered is that you know and again this wasn't obviously true at the start when people were getting relatively substantial amounts but as you know the long tail continues you know we have some say for example Trail of Cthulhu adventures that have been out for like you know kind of 10 nearly 10 years at this point and so you know the kind of the long tail is still continuing there are still royalties due on those but the amount of time and effort it takes us to calculate the royalties due on that um is often worth considering it's it's often a lot more than the royalties we're paying on it you know that which might be like a couple of dozens of dollars in some cases mm. so we've we've tried like i said recently to buy um to buy everyone who we originally worked with on a royalties basis to buy out their remaining royalties. Um, because it's just, again, as you know, I, I think we're a very small company with very, very limited resources. And what we need to look at is the best use of our time, particularly like my time and also the time that Simon's able to put in as well. And, mm. you know, spending days and days calculating dozens of dollars of royalties for people is, is not, a, a, but it's not a good, use of our time it's not a productive use of our time in any way so we're we're certainly we've certainly leaned very much away from the royalties model um but the thing is i think again for us as a company that's because we have a, a number of different channels um that we that we sell our products th through if you mm -hmm. were for example exclude if you were only on drive through i know the drive through has a number of tools that allow you to just instantly pay everyone royalties straight away without right. you know you having to do any calculations it just kind of the system will do it for you automatically so i think that you know if we were only selling our products through drive through rpg i think that would be a, a very different conversation maybe yeah that makes sense we we tend to not do the royalties model ourselves when we're working with artists and writers we would prefer to do um upfront payment um or payment on delivery or some combination of those things um, because firstly because it allows us the flexibility to reuse art if we need to um, and to um, ensure that we are kind of getting value from what we're from what we're asking for um, partly there's that there's the accounting element of it as you've as you've said um, but also if as, as Jay said, if there is a if there's something that we're putting out into the world and we don't know how well it's going to sell, we would much rather be paying people consistently for the work that they have done for us in a way that makes them feel that that work was worth doing, regardless of what the sales figures are at the other end of it. Hmm. Um, that said, we are, as I said before, we're self effectively we're self publishers, so Grant and Chris get paid very much on a royalties model. <laughs> um, 
as our two primary writers. So uh, I think it works a little differently when you're publishing someone else's someone else's core system. Yeah, I suppose that goes back to the point we were making earlier about how do you compensate your production staff is very often they will actually be the person in charge of the company or the, per- the only person drawing salary from the company maybe yeah. so they are getting compensated it's just not really a balance uh, sort of company balance mm-hmm. checklist so much I, it, I, I think i think that very often they get paid last though as well mm. which which i think is yeah. is fundamentally right but certainly i know like um you know for us like we will always make sure you know, we pay on delivery. So like writers or artists, you know, as soon as they have handed in their manuscripts, they get paid. And, mm. you know, we shoulder any and all of the kind of market risk. Um, you mm. know, we don't, we, we, like I said, we kind of agree a rate with them up front and then we, we pay them that even if we don't sell any copies. Um, so, yeah. And again, I think that's that's quite important to us. Like we very much feel like if somebody has done that work for us, that they should, you know, get paid for that. But, yeah. It's interesting though because I think part of the reason for the royalties model being more free, more more common, is because you have to have a functioning business in order to have the uh, capital and the reserves yeah. to pay artists and writers for what they're delivering. Um, or you have to assume that you're just not going to have any art for the Kickstarter or have anything really done before the before you launch a crowdfunding campaign, which is scarily risky. And yeah. also, if you don't have good art, it's very difficult to market what it is that you're trying to create. So I think there is, again, there's a distinction here between what you might be doing if you're just creating your first product or your first project um, where you might not have the reserves to pay somebody up front, but you might well be able to say, hey, I think we can co-create something here and the percentages of that will be valuable to both of us um, versus the position that we're now in after sort of two and a half years of being being formally in business where we're actually able to say, you know what, we're going to invest this X thousand pounds in creating a set of playtest rules creating a quick start document paying an artist for several pages of art and a cover up front um that's a really privileged position to be in it's the result of a lot of hard work to get the business to a place of sustainability if you don't yet have a sustainable business then actually royalties are probably going to be the only way that you're going to get to that point Hmm. absolutely yeah i think that's a really great point there there is a kind of a, a certain amount um, I think similar to, you know, the kind of startups industry, I think there's a certain amount of kind of almost sweat equity that mm-hmm. that people need to kind of buy into to get kind of indie kind of um, indie productions and indie art off the ground. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, it goes back to my uh, earlier point about scope, I guess, is that there are things that you can do to make your product stand out i think as an indie creator that aren't hugely cash intensive like if you're just one person working on your own thing you can you know hit up creative commons art or public domain art to illustrate your document you can um grab a cheap layout software um like uh, affinity publisher is only 50 pounds i think i mean i say only 50 pounds that's still a hurdle for people but it's better than Google Docs. Um, although I say yes. that, 
the first RPG product I put out for money was laid out in a PowerPoint. <laughs> wow. So, That's... Like, how? Oh, you, you set the slide size to be A5, and then you export as a PDF. Perfect. Wow. Yeah, works. And, you know, it still has, like, some graphic design sort of aligning of things and all that sort of thing. It's, I'm not saying that it's a sort of perfect situation for everyone, but, like, if you sort of think about your scope, um, the key thing, I think, is to make a product that you can... Well, I think it's something that I learnt from um, the guys at... Some of the folks at Roman Rook and Deckard talking about things is uh, the minimum viable product idea. Yes. Is you make something that is has the minimum amount invested in it that people can see its promise. Yeah. And then you get money from that, hopefully, or at least investment, or at least uh, hype. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. then you invest that into sequentially sort of better versions of that. And as you do that, hopefully you're getting money from that. Um, whether that's from donations or from selling a Ashcan version. We should talk about Ashcans. Well, yeah, um, and, and Jay, could you talk about what you're doing on Itch? Because you're not the only one doing this yeah. on Itch, but you're doing some quite interesting stuff there, I think, in, in in the way of what you've just described. Yeah, okay. So this will be a sort of case study, I guess. So the game I'm spending most of my time on designing at the moment is uh, one called Void Heart Symphony, which I'm very happy with. But um, what I did for the production plans of this is basically I looked at um, Lancer, which was a huge uh, Kickstarter. Was that this year? I was still this I year. I think this, this, this year has been several years. Yeah, ago. yeah, I think it was. Yeah. I mean, I should know because I'm actually like attached to that as a layout <laughs> artist. But <laughs> um, Then, yes, I think it definitely was. But yeah. Uh, I think um so i looked to see what they'd done to get a huge amount of uh money raised from essentially a first time rpg product and part of that was individual fame like one of the co-creators has a huge web comic um has lots of friends in the comic industry etc etc so yeah maybe you can't duplicate that but another thing they did is during the development of it um they had it up for free for one thing uh, their working draft, and they would constantly post interesting tidbits of it on social media. Like, they would say, like, here's a picture of one of the giant robots, this is a thing detail about it. Or here's a little tidbit of lore about the setting. And they also maintained a fan chat room, a fan discord. And that server, um, let's see, it currently has... 1,356 people logged in just chatting. Wow. Yeah, it's a, it's a huge server, basically. And yeah. they did that by creating a place for people... Well, so they did two things, really. They created reasons for people to be enthusiastic about the game, and they created a space for people to be enthusiastic about the game. So what I'm doing on Itch at the moment is I'm putting my game up for free, or, well, for pay what you want. I'm updating it regularly. I'm posting production notes. Um, I am trying to talk about production of it on a regular basis. So like I have a reminder on my phone that goes off at 3pm every day 
that says, uh, have you tweeted about game design today? <laughs> and most yes. of the time I dismiss that so... and don't tweet about game design today. <laughs> but it's that reminder to be a person online talking about game design. Because that's actually a huge thing. Like, mm. I mean, it kind of sucks that so much of um, succeeding online is developing that sort of personal brand. Yeah. But it's true. I mean, and fundamentally, like, if, if you're going to talk about it non-cynically, you would say that people need a reason to spend money on your thing because there's so many things out there. And that can come from someone that they trust saying, I played X and it was good. Or it can come from looking at art and saying, that looks good. Or it can come from them knowing you and or knowing something about you and saying, I know this person, that looks good. And as an yeah. indie creator, you've really got to find one of those things that you can really excel at. But ideally, you want a combination, right? Yeah. Um, because... There's always going to be some people who really like you and will buy your stuff, more or less, whatever it is. Hmm. And then there are going to be some who they need to be enthused by the product. If you only get that first category, you're not going to make very much money. Well, unless hmm. you are really very charismatic. <laughs> um, so, yeah, and that's... It's, it's... Is, is Itch a way for you to make money already out of Voidhearts, Jay? Oh, yeah, certainly. Um, so... In the time I've had it up for free, uh, I have made. This is Jay looking at the commission. In the time I've had it up for free, which is about six months, uh, I have made six hundred and seven dollars from it, which is quite a lot for a free product, I would say. Mm -hmm. um, and that, yeah. that pays for some art when you go to Kickstarter or yeah, you know, whatever it is that would help. Yeah, so I'm planning that. on getting a cover art and some, you know, character art before I go to Kickstarter. Though, honestly, that's coming out probably more like 1,600 or so. Because, you know. The other thing is, people in this industry habitually underpay artists. But Yes. Like, um, if you're paying someone to make a cover for your book... Um, that should be, I mean, if it's the sort of book cover that you'll see in your game store shelves, that should be at least $1,000, my artist friends tell me. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. Probably more. Wow. Yeah. Itch.io is a really interesting space. We, I mean, on sort of just on the topic of uh, personal brands, obviously the main reason that people have heard of Robrock and Deckard is because they're aware of Grant, hmm. um, who whose brand has been enormously uh, helpful for the business, put it like that. Um, but there is a, uh, I'm aware that there is a competition around people creating uh, micro games on itch, known as beating the bear. Which is what that that which is what happens if your um if your game on itch.io uh, appears higher in the top downloads list than uh, Honey Heist, yeah. <laughs> um, which I didn't realise that was a thing until until quite recently. Um, Grant Grant's one free Grant, Grant creates free one page games, and his Patreon is now at a level where that is 
that is a it's it's a meaningful income stream for the business just via patreon um but also we put those out for pay what you want on drive through rpg on our own website and also on itch and it's been really interesting watching the itch community develop especially since the kind of demise of google plus mm. um into a space where people are doing all sorts of unusual interesting experimental things with physical games in the same way as it's become a become that kind of space for digital games um i really hope that continues i'm like i'm loving what jay what you're doing with it it's super super cool um i i just i hope more people use that space and use that space to find new games and explore new games as well as using that space to put up new games and just Mm. play Mm. because there's drive through doesn't have the discoverability of itch um it doesn't have the flexibility um and and the 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 capacity for people to make new weird interesting stuff put it out into the world and see what happens from that is i think absolutely vital to the future of the industry it's that's the kind of space where experimentation genuinely happens and it's Mm. absolutely vital yeah i mean like so just looking at the top physical games on it shows in these are the ones that most people have like visited uh obviously i see honey heist there i see a party game about ma- begging for mercy from jolene mm-hmm. oh <laughs> i love that game such so a good game it's amazing so you know i see like games about cockfighting about breaking into carly ray jepson's song vault about polyamorous <laughs> people fighting ghosts about mm-hmm. uh Conducting a heist across different timelines. That one's mine. Yep. It's top for me at the moment. Congratulations. Oh, it's number four for me at the moment. So that's the other thing about Itch, is I really don't know how their algorithms work. Magic. Magic, I guess. And so, you know, we're kind of talking about um, how people make money out of their game business. I, I hear yeah. really mixed stories about Itchio. Some people kind of talking about how they make a lot of money i mean you, I, I don't know what a lot means in this context um 600 mm. sounds pretty great um for a game that's not quite yet ready like completed completely finished um and but i also hear other people who put stuff on there and it just sort of vanishes and never never receives any money at all um and i guess that's probably normal variation right partly but also it's not enough just to put your game out you you do have to you have to tell people that it exists and you have to tell people why they should buy it and you probably have to tell them in places that aren't just itch that's exactly um, it yeah you have to have kind of like i think it was jay was saying earlier you know you have to have your your kind of brand really um, you have to be kind of publicizing it and marketing it somewhere else so that's really interesting um I, I, you know clearly that's true um but to take uh, Lovecraft Desk as an example um, obviously it had a successful Kickstarter um, and it went on to be sold from our website on DriveThru and now it's on Itch and there is still like a trickle of interest on DriveThru that I do nothing I never ever promote DriveThru sorry guys, DriveThru if you're listening I don't do that um, I, what I want to promote is my own website because that's where I get the best percentage Nevertheless, there is a trickle of interest on drive-through. On itch, that doesn't seem to be the case. Now, maybe like if... that's because drive-through has a library. 
people will buy in the same way as people will buy games on Steam despite the fact that they might be cheaper through the humble web store DRM free. People like collecting things. They like their collection to all be in one place. Um, and people value having a PDF on drive through because they know where to find it. They know that they can come back to it and they know that they can keep re-downloading it if they need to. Um, whereas if, but they might not necessarily trust your website in the same way as, as they do those, uh, as they do drive through mm. um, And your website and, and itch for that matter probably can't give them your PDF alongside all of the other PDFs that they've purchased or, or even kickstarted. Yeah. Um, there's, I mean, there's like drive, the service that DriveThru provides is isn't just the capacity to download the PDF. It's also that sense of collection and that sense of kind of consistency of having everything all in one place. And I think I think it's easy to underestimate how much certain people respond to that. Well, I think it's it's kind of like the Amazon model, really, isn't it? Like they're aiming to be your kind of one-stop marketplace, and as you know, and they've built that reputation. And so, as a result, if somebody, you know, if your average gamer on the street is looking for a PDF, they'll you know they'll go to drive through and assume that they can get it there. It would be interesting. It'd be interesting to know whether um, people start their searches for. Uh, RPGs actually on drive through in the way that they start searches for physical products on Amazon these days. I mean, even if they don't, even if you just Google it, I think there's a good chance that drive through yeah. will be the top hit for something. I, th- I think I think if you Google most of our products, drive through is the top hit for them, which is really it's really distressing. Um, yeah, they. I mean, drive through yeah. SEO is very that's very it. strong. Yeah. Um just because of i mean just because of domain authority apart from anything else what is that oh um the longer a web domain has been online and the more it has been trusted over that time period um the the more weight google will give to any page on that domain okay so start your website early and get linking to it i guess mm-hmm. yeah yeah, very, very little can substitute for length of time and, uh, like I say, authority on a topic. If And Drive-Thru RPG has been a go-to place for people to find good information about RPGs for years, certainly for years longer than our websites mm. existed. It's not a surprise to me that Google prioritises um, those signals over, over some others. Yeah. And that's a good reason as well... Um to use your website for more than just hosting your stuff um like 100 so yes black armada we sell our stuff there but we also have a blog there and i think we seem to have really good seo um i don't we're not really through deliberate action but i i think it's probably because of the the blog um c- collecting in enough of a of a nexus of interest or whatever the heck it is that google um users to, to decide that you're going to go to the top. We, I think we beat drive through for our products, so that's nice. <laughs> that's very impressive, yeah. Mm. Um, we, for a while we were like a top hit. If you googled PBTA, Black Armada was one of the top Why hits. Because <laughs> I'd written an article huh. about PBTA and it somehow did some SEO. I don't know what the hell. Um, if only I could figure out how it worked, I could do a panel about that. <laughs> uh, but I don't. Um, yeah. So what about, uh, do, do we think it's, 
is there an argument for not going on drive-through? Like, if it, if actually, from what you're saying, Maz, you, it sounded like you were kind of saying, actually, people are coming there not because they found your product on drive-through, but because they found your product and then they want to have it on drive-through. Is drive-through giving people additional reach, or is it just a place that people can buy your product that some people happen to prefer? It's hard to tell. I think for us, it's been valuable being on drive-through um, because the partly just because things like their de deals of the day um, and sales put our work in front of people that otherwise might not purchase it. Um, much much like Kickstarter puts your project in front of the sort of people that browse Kickstarter, being on drive-through puts your product in front of the sort of people that browse drive-through. Um, and that is, if that's not an audience that you have the capacity to reach in other ways, then yeah, it's valuable. Yeah. Um, I personally, if you are trying... There's also a thing here about how much you want... Again, the distinction between being an individual creator and be, trying to build a sustainable business. If you're trying to build a sustainable business, you want your own web store, you want your own front page, you want the capacity to sell things yourself. If you're a, an individual creator who's created one thing and you're not, for example, investing in a print run or um, distribution that's distinct from print on demand, then actually you might only want drive through. That might be more than enough to get your work into the hands of the people that care about your work. Um, and to do that in a way that's as minimally disruptive to the rest of your existence as possible might actually be a goal for you. In which case, what drive through is doing is genuinely second to none. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a good point. Like, and everything, everything comes down to what your strategy is yeah. and what your, what, what your what goals are. You right. What are you trying to get out of this? Because if what you're trying to get is a sustainable thing that allows you, as Grant and Chris want to do, to just write about elves for as long as possible... Um, you make very, very different choices. Yeah. You make different decisions. Like all of these things are tools that you can use. So the thing to get clear on in your own head is what is it that I'm trying to do here? Because then you can make your decisions actually probably quite straightforwardly. Hmm. Whereas if you don't have clarity on that kind of core question, it's going to be very difficult for you to make choices. Yeah. It's a question of sort of what does success mean for me? Uh, what does success mean for this product? Because, you know, also... Fundamentally, one thing you've got to grapple with as a professional in RPGs is you will not do D&D &D numbers. And it is very likely... <laughs> not that even D&D &D does D&D &D numbers most no, of the time. That's true. But it's also very likely that, at least by whatever metric you're personally assessing your game with as, it'll be better than D&D. &D. So <laughs> mm -hmm. you, you've got to make peace with that, basically. You can't, make, you can't think that your game is going to become the next D&D &D, or even the next, you know white wolf or the next apocalypse world you know you can it'd be nice if it was certainly but it's important to know how much is good enough for a product it's also good important to know how much when a product is good enough for release because a lot of the time it's easy to get stuck into a i must make this perfect and i must make this excellent and then if I've made it perfect and excellent and then released it and it doesn't set the world on fire, then I'm a failure as a designer. When actually, you will, as a designer, your ambition should always be that you're constantly improving, to my mind. And yeah. what the goal for your product should be, I think, is that it provides good, no one regrets getting it. 
and it gives you a good foundation to build the next thing. And it can't help you build the next thing if it's not out there. Yes. The um, Grant will talk about this uh, in a really interesting way. His one-page Patreon was originally started because he needed, he felt he needed an impetus to start putting small, potentially unfinished things out into the world to just write and just publish. And effectively, the Patreon was an opportunity for him to do that and kind of show his working and not worry about it being polished and perfect and beautiful, but instead just go, well, what's what's a quick idea that I can put out into the world? And some of those, some of his work has gone absolutely huge and some of it really hasn't. Some of it's small and weird and iterative and experimental and some of it's grim um, and some of it's extremely silly but didn't land in the same way that Honey Heist did. Um, but that, I think he would say that that effort of putting something out into the world every month, even though it, it, it's an enormous investment, it also makes him a better designer because he's iterating and he's consistent in making something new on a repeated basis. I don't think Spire or Heart would be as good as they are if it weren't for the time and energy he puts into those one pages. How long has Grant been doing his Patreon? Um, we are at a little over two years now. Um, I mean, he's missed one. He's missed. I think we started. I think he started in March, February or March two thousand seventeen, and he's missed one month in that time. Gosh. Wow, that's really good. But that's important yeah. as well. Like you have to, you know, if you make that sort of commitment, you have to deliver on it as well. You know, that maintains trust with the community and and that. So. Yeah. So, so we've started a Patreon recently, um, and it's making a small amount of money. It's probably it might be making more money than a lot of patrons, patrons, patrons um, make creators, um, but but nowhere near enough to really kind of justify the effort. If you see what I mean, we view it more as a a way to get people who are interested in us and who are interested in our stuff like a place to go and engage with what we're doing um, because it's quite difficult to to do that with g plus gone twitter is mm -hmm. shit um <laughs> and uh, facebook i know i'm not sure whether facebook shit or not i don't really use it for that purpose but like patreon means we've got a small number of people and we can really really engage them mm -hmm. um I don't know what have others found about that. Um, so we put quite a lot of effort into building community around our work. We didn't always do that. Um, mm. But over time, we've built up a strategy that actually has... So there's an interesting thing, right, about about small arts businesses where the aim actually isn't to be a billion dollar business and take over the world hmm. it's to consistently serve an audience of people who care about the things that you're trying to put out into the world and to keep those people happy um, i read a fascinating piece um a little while ago which argued very strongly that if you could get a core of a thousand people to care about what you do enough that they would always be interested in purchasing it that's probably enough for most businesses. You don't need to think about growth and growth and growth. It actually boils down to finding a scale at which you can operate consistently. 
and building connections with those human beings who are at the other end of that, who care enough about what you do, who think like you do, or who, 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 who find affinity with your work. And that has been the, the model around which we have built um, Rowan, Rook and Deckard's kind of, I guess, marketing approach. Mm. Um, we have Grant's Patreon, um, which is kind of designed to give people tasters of what we do. It's fantastic that people are willing to pay to support him. That is enormously valuable and brilliant. We have um, the we have a, a Discord, uh, which is a, a space where people can come and talk about our games and where we can we can also give people um, give people kind of direct access, answer questions, get feedback. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a podcast. For a lot of people, the podcast is a major marketing activity. For us, it's a very, very niche. Um, uh, And as a result of that, we actually have a a crowd of people, a much smaller group of people who are interested in that podcast, who are kind of much closer to the heart of the business, who most of those people I would consider personal friends. Hmm. Um, And within that, we have a tiny core of playtesters who get to see a lot of stuff before we launch it, who play in our playtest games. Um, That's not... It's, we've sort of got these concentric circles of people who are closer and closer, not just to the business, but to us as human beings. Um, and there's a point at which everybody within that circle are, are people that I have gone for drinks with or would go for drinks with if I was in the same, you know, if we were in the same place. Hmm. Um, because what we're building isn't a mass market appeal product. We're not building the next D&D. We're never going to be building the next D&D. So what we want is to build ways that people feel like they can be in touch with us and be part of something and connect with people who are like them because fundamentally right we're creating things that bring people together Mm. we're creating story machines for people to use in groups if we're not providing opportunities for people to come together in those groups and facilitating that then we're probably missing out on a fairly major part of what we ought to be doing yeah well it is four minutes to nine and we promised we'd finish at nine so i think I will. And um, we've have, we've covered at least three percent of I... the things we said we were going to talk about. I think we've almost completed the first suggested topic on our long list of topics, so that's pretty great. Um, I found this really. We could in... probably make a series out of this, you guys. Yeah, I, I think so. Yeah, I would. I would like to. Would you? Would I'd you be up for to. coming back? Yeah, definitely. Cool. Definitely. So I'll. We've got. I mean, this is not an organised plan, but we've got stuff to talk about in the future, maybe about production and distribution. We'll have questions from the audience. We've got questions from the audience. Some of them we have addressed by accident, by the way. So Yes, yes, we have. (laughs) And that was entirely deliberate. Um, We've got (laughs) stuff about tax and hiring people and marketing and publicity and building an audience, some of which we've hinted at now. So it'd be great to get into that in more depth. So this has been The League Presents... I'm, I've been Josh Fox. Uh, my website is blackamada.com. Uh, my Twitter handle is at Rabalias, R-A-B-A-L-I-A-S. Um, so um, I'm Kat Tobin, and our website is pelgrainpress.com. And we're on Twitter at pelgrainpress, um, or you can follow me. I'm at Kat, T-H-M. Excellent. So, yeah, uh, I'm Jay Arles. You can find my website at ufopress.co.uk. You can follow me on Twitter at JC Isles, or you can follow my corporate account at UFO Press RPGs. 
Uh, and I'm Mary Hamilton. Uh, you can find uh, the Rowan Rook and Deckard website at rowanrookanddeckard.com, but no one can spell that, so you can also find it at rrdgames.com. <laughs> um, you can follow me on Twitter at NewsMary, um, or you can follow our corporate account, but I wouldn't advise it if you want to actually hear about everything we're doing. The best thing to do is actually to follow Grant. He's at GS Howitt. <laughs> Excellent. And this We've just resigned ourselves to that now. <laughs> <laughs> and this has been the League Presents RPG whatever we said it was, RPG business chat. <laughs> Yay. Yeah. Right. Bye everyone. Bye. Cool. Bye. Bye everyone. Bye.